How'd you do? All right, one at a time. Yell out your favorite movies. Best movie of all time. Give it to me. <laughs> I said one at a time. Work together as a large group. All right, I'm hearing Dumb and Dumber. Any applause for that? That actually is in my top five. Good job. It is in my top five. We got no food. We got no money. Our pets' heads are falling off. Right? <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Uh, yeah. Forrest Gump. Excellent. Excellent. We'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. Sorry. I'm not awarding you for that one. You're reading in my notes here, apparently. Yes. Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Oh, wrong one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ring. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 The deer hunter. Yeah. What's that about? I, no. Yeah. Vietnam. That's right. Yes. That's, that's an older one. The peaceful warrior. <laughs> I've never seen it. Is it good? Excellent. We'll have to rent that one. Is it like an arts and crafts movie? Winning the gold medal. Perfect. Excellent. Now you know. The Peaceful Warrior. I, I've not seen that. That's excellent. Yes. Transformers. Yeah, do a movie like Robots in Disguise. That would be a good movie. Something like that. All right. Anybody else? Yeah. Anne of Green Gables. Yeah. All the guys are like, what up? Yeah. Right. Football and then Anne of Green Gables. All right. Excellent. Yeah, I haven't gotten into that. All right. Um, so... So here are my top five in no particular order. Uh, these are in no order of importance, right? And we already said Tommy Boy, okay? So that's not on the list. And D- Dumb and Dumber was, was on the list. Excellent, excellent movie, fantastic. So I'm going to give you the quote to the other ones, my other top five. First one to, to, to call it out. I'm going I'm to chuck this as hard as I can. Please um, watch your eyes, all right? Here it is. First person, here's your hint. One of my top five movies, Kaiser Sose. Yes! I'm so sorry. That was really hard. <laughs> the Usual Suspects. Kevin Spacey. Oh, best movie of all time. Other than some other ones that we'll probably mention. This one, like in the last 60 seconds of the whole entire film, totally resolves itself. Oh, if you're like, you know, I'm just waiting for the credits. No, with this movie, it's like, boom! Never saw it coming. Amazing, 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 amazing. All right, here's another one. Uh, <laughs> here's the quote. How's your portfolio, Greg? Oh, I'd say strong to very strong. I already threw one at you. Here you go. Good job. All right. (laughs) Meet the parents. Yeah. Anybody have like lots of heartburn as they watch that movie? Physically discomfort? Meet the parents? Yes. Very, very difficult movie for for some of us to watch. All right. Here's another one. Here's another one. Um, (laughs) I picked an obscure quote on purpose. Uh, Do the chickens have large talons? Yes! I'm so glad you guys knew that. The Greens here took an anniversary trip, road trip, following all the points of Napoleon Dynamite in Iowa. Fantastic. Fantastic. Idaho. There you go. Absolutely brilliant. So here's the deal with Napoleon Dynamite. You either really like the movie, or you're just like, totally didn't get it. How many of you guys are like, worst flick of all time? Be brave. Yes, yes. How many of you are like, brilliant should be on Broadway? Yeah, excellent. All right, here's, here's one more. Um, all men die, but not every man lives. Good job. Good job. Excellent. Braveheart, probably one of the best, best movies of all time. In fact, just raise your hand. Was that on your top three right there, Braveheart? 
Yeah, I kind of expected a few people to have that on their list. It is, it is fantastic. I love the line in the movie where they ask William Wallace, they ask him, they, they said, hey, where are you going? His response, I'm going to pick a fight. Oh, that's just awesome. Like every guy watching that, here's what happens during the movie. As it goes on, you're like, anybody need a door opened? You know, or uh, I can open up a can, yeah, whatever. Do you need something? You know, that's what it does to guys. I mean, it's just like straight injection of testosterone. Love that movie. Okay, but here's, here's the movie that I want to talk about for just a few minutes here. And actually, uh, a lot of the thoughts that we're going to talk about today come straight out of this book by Mike Bro. Uh, several weeks ago, maybe four, uh, a bunch of guys from K2 went to this conference called Ignite. And at Ignite, there was a fantastic speaker. His name is Mike Bro, And he is a, he's a, a teaching pastor at Heartland, Heartland Community Church back east. And he wrote this book called making ripples. It actually is going to be the foundation of today's message. We've got a bunch of copies out in the storefront in both buildings that you can just pick up. I really, really highly recommend that you grab one of these books. If you're reading this and go, what sounds like today's message? That's because we're using it completely as a foundation for today, direct ripping off from Mike Bro. And uh, because we believe the, the, the message that Mike has written on here is really a message for K2, and then we want to share it with you today. Mike Bro starts off his whole entire book talking about one of the best movies he's ever seen. And as I read it, I'm like, oh, are you kidding me? This is absolutely is one of my top five as well. And it wasn't necessarily the first time I watched it and then watched it again and again. I'm like, ah, but it's, it's, it's amazing. And here it is. Guess the quote again. Stupid is as stupid does. Archie? That's right. Thanks, Archie. Stupid is as stupid does. Forrest Gump. Fill in the blank. Extra points for using the accent. Life is like a box of... You never know what... Well done, <laughs> right? Great movie. You learned so much about life in Forrest Gump. Definitely after you see it two or three times. And uh, it's one of those movies that actually starts to grip your heart the more you watch it because of some of the, some of the things he really struggles with. It makes you actually reflect on your life. Um, there's a scene actually towards the end where, where uh, Forrest's wife, her name is Jenny, she ends up dying. She dies really young. And Forrest is standing at the grave. Do you remember the scene? Standing at the grave, and he's looking down at the gravesite. And he ponders this question. Here's the quote. He says, I don't know if Mama was right or if it was Lieutenant Dan. I don't know if we each have a destiny or if we're all just kind of floating around, accidental, like a feather on a breeze. Remember that quote? I remember because it was at that time in the movie where I went, oh, now I get it. Right in the first part of the movie, you remember that? That little feather was just kind of floating around all the way through the beginning opening scenes. And you're like, what's with the feather, you know? <laughs> Saving money on 3G, throw a feather in. I, I, you know, I, I didn't really get it. And like, I don't know, in foreshadowing. And then later at the end of the movie, you, you get this quote and you're like, ah, got it. And you start seeing the, the whole entire life, life story here. He says, is it just kind of accidental like? Just kind of floating around? Just kind of whatever happens? Just, just to and fro. And the deeper you start thinking about this question, the more important it actually has really become to me. Because I think there are a lot of people, I think there's a lot of people, and it's been true in my life too, where you just kind of float around accidental-like, just kind of to and fro, just whatever happens, wherever the wind might take you, just kind of, kind of it was where you end up. And the more you think about that, the more you realize Actually, a lot, a lot of the culture teaches us that, even from young age. There's a prevalent, prevalent thought out there, very strong thinking that we kind of came from nothing, 
and then we're going to go into nothing, and then in between nothing and nothing is a whole bunch of nothing, and so what does it matter? So what's the matter anyways? If there's no eternity and there's nothing to look forward to and there's nothing that's going to happen and there's no, there's no destiny, then it means there's no purpose for our life. And if there's no purpose for our life, then that means life is up for grabs as far as interpretation. And if life is up for grabs for interpretation, then it means you get to interpret your own truth. And if you get to interpret your own truth, then what's relative to me and good for me is not necessarily good for you, but it doesn't really matter because I just kind of interpret it as I go along anyways because it's nothing. It doesn't matter. And what we're left with is a lot of culture, and then we see it right now. It's just kind of floating around. Just like whatever, to and fro, accidental-like, doing whatever I please. Whatever you please. And if there is no eternity, and if there is no destiny, if there is no purpose, if there's no reason for existence, and I think this is what Forrest Gump was asking, if there's no reason for existence, then the only alternative to that sort of thinking is then you've got to just make the best of what you've got right now. And unfortunately, what that means for for most people is whatever serves me, whatever I want to do, whatever pleases me, advances me, whatever makes me feel right, whatever makes me happy, whatever, whatever, whatever. Great quote, Napoleon Dynamite. Help me out, Greens. Here you go. Throwing it out. Kid on the bus, little kid on the bus, looks at Napoleon one day and he goes, Napoleon, what you going to do today? Napoleon Dynamite? What are... Yeah, whatever I feel like doing. Gosh. Just floating around. Thank you, I'm proud. Floating around. Just like a feather. To and fro. Whatever, whatever, whatever. You actually don't have to look very far to see this. Recently, there was a survey done. 29,000 high school students. They randomly selected these 29,000 from over 100 different high schools across the United States. So it didn't matter where it was, just, just completely random. They asked them a bunch of questions, and they said, how many of these things have you done within the last 12 months? 12 months. How many of these things have you done? 71% admitted that they totally cheat on exams all the time. 71. Wow. Not my kid, right? 92% said that in the last 12 months, they totally lied to their parents. 78% said they lie to their teacher all the time. Now, that's weird. I lie to my parents more than I lie to my teacher. One in four admitted that they would totally have no problem lying to get a job. 40% of males, 30% of women said that the last 12 months they've totally shoplifted. Whatever. Doesn't matter. Whatever. Just go for it. Nearly one in six reported that in the last 12 months they were just totally, this high schoolers, totally skunk drunk at school. Whatever. Doesn't matter. Who cares? 66, oh, 68% said that they have totally hit somebody violently in the last 12 months because they were just really angry. 68%. But here's the kicker. This is the part that, that I just go, come on. Despite all these responses from the survey, 93% of these kiddos totally said they were satisfied with their personal ethics and their character. Wow. Why are these stats so high? Because it's whatever, man. Whatever you want to do, whatever, whatever works. You know, if there's going to nothing, coming from nothing, nothing in between, if it doesn't matter, if there's no purpose, then there's no destiny, then I just do whatever I want. Whatever makes me happy, whatever I feel like doing, it doesn't matter. Here's the problem with this line of thinking. Is that we don't have a God who is a whatever God. Aren't you glad? 
Aren't you glad we don't have a God who's like, whatever. Okay, like, I totally am struggling with sin right now. I totally am scared to die. I'm totally can't, can't, you know, I don't even know if I, God, whatever. Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out, human. God, I I really want to pray to you right now because I'm having this difficulty in my family and and one of my family members is dying of cancer or I got a relationship or this or that or work. And what if God's response is, whatever, whatever, it's good. Aren't you glad that we don't have a whatever type of God that just doesn't simply, he just doesn't simply float around on whatever wind and to wherever he's going, directionless, purposelessness, just God who just doesn't have any idea what's going on. That would be a scary situation. And I believe down deep in every fiber of my being as I read his word that if that's not who our God is, that he has created us with the same DNA and created us with this desire for purpose and desire for significance and a desire to change this world that we live in, a desire to not just settle with this whatever, just, to, just not to just settle with this just to and fro, and, but rather he's created us in a DNA to actually become world changers. And that can't happen with a whatever attitude. One of my favorite verses, Ephesians chapter 2.10. You'll see it on the screen here. Oh, love this. For we are God's workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Way in advance. Way before whatever God created you. Now, that word created there actually is only used as a verb with God. He is the only one that actually can use that verb in the, in the passage here. He's created by God. That word is assigned to him. Created. He created you. It says, what, what's the word there? What are we? We're God's what? It says workmanship, which literally means a work of art. This created work of art that he has made, that, that, that when you and I come into relationship with Jesus Christ and we place our faith in him, God says, you're my masterpiece. You're, you're a work of art. You're exactly what I created, exactly what I molded, created for greatness. First time I ever saw uh, Lilies by Monet. You ever seen Lilies? He created a lot of these. He painted tons. Most of, I think the first time I saw it was like on a calendar, you know, and it's not very moving when it's like this. You're like, oh, wow, February, it's great, you know, and it's Monet's, right? Lilies. It's beautiful, but you don't get the whole, like, scale of it, right? And then I was in the MoMA in New York. Anybody, please tell me if you've had this experience. You walk in to this room, and I was unaware of this, and I was unprepared for it, I think, which actually was even better. And I walked in, and there's one room it's not quite as big as this, dedicated to one piece of art, lilies, 20, 30, I don't even know, feet long by maybe like eight feet high, and that's it. That's all that's in there, and, and it's freestanding out away from the wall, and I walked in, I went, oh, whoa, and every hair on my body, and that's a lot of hair, like, you know, on the back, all stood up. <laughs> All at once, people were like, whoa. <laughs> and, and I looked at this thing, and I'm like, are you kidding me? Look at this. It was almost, almost. I can, I'm not even sure I could say this in the same sentence, but it was almost like a spiritual experience. You know, you get one of these, and you're like, oh, that was like, I just felt like, oh, man, what was? Amazing. See, that's a picture I get here in Ephesians. You are created as a work 
of art, this living, breathing work of canvas that God has created to display. You're like this display case of God's grace and mercy created to do what? Whatever. Good works. Created to change the world. Created to carry this news, this gospel that God has given to us. So that through your life, when you are connected with God in relationship with him, you begin to see world change in your life, in the world around you. If you and I were to brainstorm just like a a quick list of some of the most influential, most amazing, profound world changers in in history, I mean, we'd come up with a pretty substantial list. I mean, all the way from Mother Teresa, right, to to Gandhi and these uh, unbelievable people that have gone before us that have been insane world changers. Well, uh, there was this German magazine back in 2000, and uh, one of my German friends who was speaking in the other building came up with this. He even taught me how to say the name of the magazine because I couldn't even do it. It was Der Spiegel, right, but with a lot more spit. And and it basically is the Time magazine version uh, uh, in, in Germany, Der Spiegel. And around 2000, they, 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 they had this poll, and they had all the readers write in and, and give all the reasons why they should, their person should be voted as like the best world changer, like the person in history who has changed the most. And all kinds of uh, people came in, and they started running stories previous to the, the calendar changing in 2000, right? They ran stories about Gandhi and all these other people. And then they, they took all the responses that they got from the readers, and they put it together. And on the, the first issue in January of 2000... The front cover was graced by the, the, by the world changer, the person who has influenced and impacted world, the world the most. And do you know who it was? It was Jesus Christ. And inside the article, they said, no matter what you feel about this person, no matter whether or not you really follow Jesus Christ as the Christ, or whatever you think about him, you cannot deny that this, this person, this Christ, has changed the history of the world more than any other president or philosopher or, or anybody. Has, it, more, more change has happened in history by this one person, this one Christ. And you start looking through the resume of Jesus, and you're like, wow, it's pretty unlikely that this would be the world changer. Some of you might be automatically playing the God card. And before you just play the God card, well, of course, he changed the world. He's God. Before you play that card... You have to look at his, his, his earthly resume, right? Born, born a small boy. Okay, that's everybody. And he born a small Jewish boy to this little tiny town in this little tiny whatever country, right? In the hills and, and born through mysterious circumstances, this, this uh, out of wedlock from this podunk town. He had a lot of followers. How many were at first? Twelve. You know, twelve guys. Wow, it's not overwhelming, Twelve guys started following him. Most of his life he was resented. Right? And, and, and his public career was really only how many years? Three years. He was killed at the age of thirty-three. Over two thousand years ago. No TV, no media, no Twitter, right? <laughs> no Facebook. That would have helped his following. No PR manager, no agent. Yet he's the most influential person in all of history. If we were to ask Jesus right now, Jesus, why? I don't think Jesus would play the God card. I don't think he would just lay it down and go, because I'm creator of the universe. His whole mission was to model life for us, to model how you and I can follow him. 
If we were to sit and ask Jesus, what was the secret to being a world changer? Here's what I believe he would say. Look at this, John chapter two, uh, 12, verse 24. This is what I believe Jesus would say to us. First, listen carefully. Unless a grain of wheat is buried in the ground, dead to the world, it is never any more than a grain of wheat. But if it is buried, it sprouts and reproduces itself many times over. In the same way, anyone who holds on to life, just as it is, destroys that life. But if you let it go, reckless in your love, you'll have it forever, real and eternal. What's he saying here? What's he saying is the secret to impacting the world, being a world changer, changing the world around you? The seed he's pointing to here, he's saying the seed that I'm talking about does not produce any fruit if, if the seed is only interested in self-preservation. If this seed is, isn't buried, if this seed doesn't want to be planted, if this seed isn't harvesting and reproducing, it doesn't matter. The seed misses the destiny that it was designed for, and no real life comes out of that seed. What, what's Jesus saying here? If you and I take our lives and we, cl- we preserve our lives and, and clutch under our lives and, and keep to ourselves and just completely keep everything inside, what happens? Well, he says it right here destroyed. If you hold on to your life, you destroy that life. And the opposite is true too, that if you let it go, if you let this life go, and the word, I love this word here, recklessly letting go in your love, recklessly letting your love go, and you sow the seed of your life, it sprouts, it grows, it produces fruit, it produces fruit, it changes and has the potential to change the world. Isn't that beautiful? That's a beautiful picture of what Jesus has done for us, sacrificing his life for all of us, all of humanity on the cross, dying so that you and I, in turn, can experience life. He goes on into to John chapter 5, verse 19. I, uh, here's what I think the second thing is that Jesus, if he was telling us the secret of being a world changer, John chapter 5, verse 19, then Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the son, he cannot do anything by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. What's the son do? Eh, whatever. No, whatever he wants. A few things, some things. No, he does nothing without the father. Whatever his father does, he does. Another way to say that is whatever, whatever God the Father told Jesus to do, Jesus was in complete submission to that. Whatever it was, complete submission. God the Father, I'm totally in. Whatever my Father says, I will do. Whatever you want me to do, I'm dependent on you. I'm not just halfway. I'm not self-preserving. I'm not uh, even self-initiating. I am waiting, completely reliant on whatever the Father says to do. And then look at this, Mark chapter 14, verse 36. Jesus goes on to even expand this a little bit further. Here's the scene, he's in the garden. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want, whose will? Your will, not mine. Have you read the scene before? It's right before Jesus was was, uh, betrayed and taken off to be tried and then he would be crucified for us. Right before all that happened, he's in anguish and he's torment and blood and he's sweating blood and he's, this is a horrible, horrible moment. 
And he actually, what a great human side of him, does not want to go through this, doesn't want to, to, to engage this. But what does he say? Father, whatever you want, whatever it is you want, not just whatever. No, what, what is it that you want, Father? What is your will, your plan, your agenda? What, what's on your mind, God? What, what, what is it that you want for me? Because if that's what you want, that's what I'm all about. I don't do anything outside of you. I don't do anything without, without asking you. It's your vision, your mission, your will. And then he died, giving us life. Victory over the grave. Jesus, one of the greatest world changers, the greatest of all world changers, because he died to his own self-preservation. He died to his own agenda, his own will. And he followed the Father with whatever God asked him to do. I want you to remember this phrase over the next couple weeks that we're together in this series. And the phrase is this. One life surrendered to God can change the world. One life surrendered to God can change the world. Would you, would you say it with me? One life surrendered to God can change the world. I need you to say it one more time. One life surrendered to God can change the world. What we mean by that is one life dying to self-preservation. One life dying to its own control. One life engaging God's mission and His plan and, and what's on His mind can literally change the world. Bro talks about it in his book. It's basically going from a whatever Christian or whatever person to a whatever follower of Christ. Just whatever, I don't really care, to whatever you want me to do, God. Wherever it is you want me to go. God, you tell me and I'll engage. I, uh, this morning I got up really early and I started writing, doing some more thoughts and I could go on for pages and pages with what I'm about ready to share with you. The stories that are coming out of just, just right here in K2 about people that are saying, God, whatever you want, I'll do it. Within just like a few moments, I was like writing down all kinds of stuff about whatever Christians, wherever Christians, whatever you want me to do. And I immediately went to my own life right away in my own experience. I'm thinking, man, what have I... When has this been a part of, of, of what has happened to Beth and me? Nine years ago, we started praying. Oh, man, we were, in, we were in a great job, making great money, living in a great little place, and we had a great red truck that Beth looked great in, and it was just a great life. And suddenly we started praying. Oh, I mean, it was a dangerous prayer. God, whatever you want us to do, go to Utah. Okay. Cut your salary in half. Oh, okay. Start a church, okay? Dave Nelson started praying the same prayer with Susie and so many others. There's several of you in here that prayed that same prayer years ago. God, what would you have us to do? Ended up in Utah. In a few short weeks, we're praying that prayer now again to head south and start a new campus. A couple years ago, Chad was, was selling a Used cars here at K2, not at K2, but you know, he was selling used cars, attending K2. Life was fine. He started praying a very dangerous prayer. God, what would you have me to do? Where do you want me to go? What, what is on your mind, God? Now he's working in Pittsburgh, working with inner city, inner city youth. 
The Bossy family, we just said goodbye to them just about a month ago. They began praying the same prayer. God, what would you have us to do? Today, they've now moved to Las Vegas, planting a church in Vegas because of that dangerous prayer. Danny and I sat across from each other drinking coffee for years and years and years, talking about all kinds of great stuff. And he began to pray as a teenager, God, what would you have me to do? About a year ago, he had a chance to travel around the world, tell people, thousands of people, about Jesus Christ. One of my new friends, Doyle Robinson, began praying this about 10 years ago. God, what would you have me to do? What do you want me to do? And it started with him going downtown and, 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 and hanging out with some of the, the street, street kids and uh, giving them socks. He gave them socks. They gave him a name. They named him Socks. He gave out socks. And now every week of his life is spent loving on kids and telling them about God. Why? Because he prayed a very dangerous prayer. Whatever it is you want me to do. There's another family that's in this room right now who's been praying this for years. God, what would you have us to do? Maybe not even around the world, but what would you have us to do in our own neighborhood? And as a result of that prayer, they have developed unbelievable, tight, deep relationships with the people up and down the block where literally in their backyard, they're able to share the gospel with people in their backyard because they prayed a very dangerous prayer. God, what would you have us to do? What do you want us to do? Here's the principle out of Mark chapter 8, verse 35. If you try to keep your life for yourself, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will find true life. One life, surrender to God, can change the world. Some of you don't believe that. Some of you are sitting here right now. You're listening to that statement. One life surrendered to God can change the world. And you're like, you don't know my world. <laughs> you do not know the dude in the QB next to me. There's no hope for that guy. You don't know the neighbors on my street. You don't know what's happening inside my heart. One life surrendered to God can change the world. Are you kidding me? I think there's a lot of fear that actually keeps us from really interacting with, with that statement right there. Really, one life, your life surrendered to God can really change your world. And I think one of the barriers for that is often fear, fear of losing control. I've just told you stories of people that have traveled around the world and gone to Vegas and, 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 and even going down to Draper, oh my goodness, and planning campuses and all these things. Sometimes one life surrendered to God can change the world means that that's scary, that I start losing control a little bit, that if I engage God, that I might have to actually engage that guy in the QB next to me or might have to actually engage that guy that lives down the street from me or the, the dude that does my taxes or whatever or even worse I might actually have to start engaging some of my family some of my in-laws some of my ex-laws some of my aunts some of my uncles if I were to say yes to God some of you have a hard time surrendering to God and believing this statement because you're actually not sure that you have anything to offer that somehow you're not qualified to be one life, surrender to God, changing your world, as if you don't have anything to bring to the table. I think that statement can sometimes be very, very scary. And it keeps us from jumping in. Mike Bro calls these uh, toe-dipping Christians. <laughs> Some of you get in the pool that way, don't you? You're not going to admit it, but you do. You walk up to the pool and... 
What's the temperature? Anybody know? 80. 80. Whew, man, it's cold. You put your toe in. Oh, good night. That's really that's cold. You put your toe in, and you just kind of, oh, oh. Then it goes up to your ankle, and you're like, oh, oh, man. You stand there for a little while, like 40 minutes, right? Right? You're like, I'm good. I'm good. I'm swimming. I'm swimming. You get up the nerve. You kind of get down to your calf, right? And you're like, oh, oh. It's like the waters of Antarctica right here, right? Some of you are like this. I know. I'm the dude in the pool going, get in, right? And then you work up to your thigh, and you're like, ah! And then you work a little harder, and you're like, ah! Right? And then finally you get up, get in, and swimming is just a really miserable experience for you. Anybody here like that? Don't admit it. Yeah? Oh, somebody rose their hand. You know how the proper way to get into a pool? I need more space. Hold on. You kind of get back a little ways. You ask your wife, hey, move the kids. Yeah. Hey, move the kids. They got life preservers on? All right, good. And you start running. And you're just hoping that you're not going to slip on the cool deck. Have you done that? Bad. <laughs> you <all> right? <laughs> Let me try it again. And you run. And at the last moment, you tuck. Right? It's a little more inverted. And you're in. And what happens? Boom! And then you get the boom! And the ripples go out. And they hit the side of the, the pool, right? And what happens? They come back in. And you're still underwater. So they go out. And they come back in. And they go back out. And they come back in. And if you're really big, they go back out again. Right? And then they come back in again. And it keeps going and going long after the initial splash. <sighs> See, I, that's what I think God had in mind for you and me. I think that's what he had in mind when he says, I want to give you a life where you start making ripples in somebody else's life. Where you jump in and your ripples start to touch someone else's life. And guess what? Their life actually starts touching someone else's life. And then their life begins to touch someone else's life. And long after you're dead and you're gone, the ripples keep going and going and going. And oftentimes our fears are the things that get away, get in the way from jumping in. But we're the ones that miss out on the great adventure. Because God's going to get done what God wants to get done whether or not we're there getting it done with him. <laughs> One of the greatest cannonballers that I know of. <laughs> he doesn't even know it. In fact, I decided during the first sermon today, or service today that I'm, I'm going to call him today and tell him. And I already know what his response is going to be. He's just going to be very humble about it. And he's like, oh, I don't know. Greatest cannonballer I know in the kingdom is Dave Rodquist. See, that, that, that name doesn't mean anything to you. you, you no, I, I don't think anybody in here knows Dave Rodquist. Dave was this guy who just totally, totally took me underneath his wing. We slept under the stars more nights than I can remember. <laughs> he taught me how to skin a snake. That's important. It's really important. <laughs> Maybe I, you know, I have a real fondness for him today. He, he, he had all girls. And there was one room in his house that was like the testosterone room. You went in, it was a den. and You know, some guys have like moose or deer hanging on the, on the wall. He had a shark that he had killed. Man, so manly. 
And he, we would sit, and not only just all that, but he would, he would share with me about God. And he rippled on my life, big time. And he rippled on Jason's life. And Jason is now in China, rippling on people's lives. And he rippled on Rusty's life. And Rusty is now rippling on others. And he rippled on, 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 uh, on Brian's life. He's now rippling on others. And this one ripple came to Utah. And I've rippled on other people's lives now. In fact, the one you're going to hear in a few minutes right outside the door here, it's uh, Nick Nyhart. I called Nick last night. I'm like, Nick, think about the people you've rippled on. He goes, oh, yeah. He began to tell me. And I asked him, I said, Nick, are there, out of those people that you've rippled on, do you know of anybody that's then in turn rippled on others? He goes, oh, psh, yeah. And he began to share with me. I need to call Dave. And I need to talk to him because he has no idea. Dave, you just, you just thought these were little ripples. You just thought you were just hanging out with Marshall. You just thought whatever. You were just saying yes to God. I know that's what he's going to say. I was just saying yes to God. But he has no idea that these little ripples have turned into waves. And these waves are like tsunamis in the kingdom of God because he said yes. And instead of just kind of floating around in his life, just doing whatever, he said yes to God and said, whatever God you want me to do, ripple on Marshall's life, I'll ripple on Marshall's life. And it goes on, it goes on and on. That is why K2 is here. That is why we're here on 2100 South. That is why we're getting ready to go south. That is why in a year from now, you'll hear about north, and if, if there is a north, and a west, and an east, and a this, and that, all over. Because the ripples continue to go, and go, and go, and go. And if you and I were to talk about the ripple stories right now in this room, it would be unbelievable. We would be here for hours. Because many of you are saying, yes, whatever you want, God, I will do. And as we end today, that's the question I want to ask you. Are you willing to do that? One life, surrender to God, can change the world. But part of interacting with that statement is deciding. Do you just want to be a toe-dipping Christian? Or when God calls you, will you jump in, making a splash, touching the people's lives around you, cannonballing in, surrendering to Jesus, changing your world? For some of you, you're going to look back on this year and your families are going to be changed because you said, yes, I will change my world with God's power. Some of you will look back this year and you will see that your office has changed, that some of your relationships have changed, that there are portions of the city that start changing because one life surrendered to God can change the world. There was some research that was recently done where uh, they got together a bunch of 95-year-olds, which is just impressive right there, right? They got them all together. They asked him a question. They said, if you had to do it all over again, looking back on your life, what would you do differently? And they got all the answers. They compiled them. And here were the top three. Overwhelmingly, number one, they said, we would reflect more on life. We'd eat more ice cream. (laughs) We would savor more sunsets. We would laugh more. We would reflect. We would pause, slow down. The second thing they said is that we would risk more We'd take more chances. We'd cannonball. We'd get way out on the limb and pick the farthest fruit. The third thing they said, we'd do something with our lives that would live long after we're dead and gone.
See, I, I don't know about you, but I read that, and I don't want to be 95 wishing that I had cannonballed, wishing that I had said yes to God, wishing that I had said, God, whatever you want, I'll do. Whatever it is, whatever you're asking, I'll do. God wants to do that here at K2, and he wants to do that in your life. One life, surrender to God, can change the world. Let's pray. Jesus, I, I, I first and foremost just want to say how grateful I am. Just Andy Marshall standing here right now, grateful to you that you have loved me through the rippling in the lives of other people through the, the Dave Rodquists and the Don McCarthys, the Rick Dross, through the people that have rippled on me because they were rippled on. And what's amazing to me, God, is that you, you started that ripple 2,000 years ago through this world changer, Jesus. Now these ripples have become waves and tsunamis. And God, I even think about today, there's so many that are sitting here today because of your love, because someone has loved on them, because they have felt and understood and drank full of your grace and your forgiveness, your reckless love that you have given to us through the lives of others. God, we are grateful. God, we pray that you would have your way with K2. We pray that you would have your way with our lives, that it would be said about this church that we are surrendered to you that we have set our agenda aside, that we are not about just, just whatever, but we are about your will and your agenda and your mission and your plan and that we are a people that would say yes to you. God, I pray that you would remove any barrier to that, any fears that we may have about self-preservation or loss of control or whether or not we even bring anything to the table. All, of this, all these fears that block the way of what you're doing and God, that you would help us, give us the courage and the strength to say yes. God, you are writing incredible stories here, even today. Lord, be glorified by our church, be glorified by our lives, by our families. Lord, use us. We praise you in your great name. Amen.